Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. If you would like to be a part of the show, sure can by calling me on the listener hotline at 303-832-0217. All my contact links are in the description of the show. And if you don't mind rating it, I sure would appreciate it. Uh, That'd be pretty cool. So on the show today, I'm going to be talking to Chris Ventura. Now, Chris is the Midwest director for this outfit called Consumer Energy Alliance. And Chris is here to talk about the electric mandates. Now, we all know that certain states want to do away with the internal combustion engine. And they want to do it by a specific date in the future, like 2035 and 2050. And well, some people and organizations, including the Consumer Energy Alliance, thinks those dates are unattainable, and Chris is going to be here along in a bit to tell us why. Uh, I mentioned uh, the mandate uh, thing in the last episode when I was talking about the hydrogen fuel stuff, so I think I'm going to talk to Chris about that too. Uh, Anyway, I think it should be an interesting conversation, so we'll uh, dial him up here in just a few minutes. But before that, I've said for a long time that if you're going to buy a car and you're looking for something that is electric, then consider a hybrid instead. Don't go pure electric just yet. And this is coming from a guy who has been driving an electric car for 10 years. And my electric car, it's unique. It comes with an onboard generator that generates electricity. So it's not, there's no ice engine in it. It's a generator in it that generates electricity. So I can fill it up with gas and just keep going when the charge runs out. Because the charge, because it was one of these early generation or, or you know early editions uh, of uh, an electric vehicle, the max charge it can really hold is about 45 miles under ultimately perfect conditions, weather-wise, battery range, you know, driving-wise, that sort of thing. So that's why it has the generator, and it. it's a great technology. I wish they that GM never got rid of it. Now, I say all of this because there's a story in the Detroit Free Press by Mark Phelan, and this is the headline. Driving a hybrid could save you money versus an EV, depending on where you live. And I thought it was pretty interesting. So I, I read the story, and the story says, depending on where you live, you might spend less on fuel driving a hybrid than driving an electric vehicle, according to a new study by Consumer Reports magazine. For instance, a driver of a Toyota Corolla hybrid living in Massachusetts would spend less on gasoline annually than the owner of a Nissan Leaf spends on electricity. $864 to fuel the hybrid versus $978 for the electricity in the EV. This report comes with a few asterisks. Only a few states share Massachusetts' rare combination of less expensive gasoline than electricity. EVs universally cost less to run than comparable gasoline-only vehicles. All right, let me stop down. Yes, that is true. Maintenance is virtually nothing on my electric car. On a comparable gasoline car, it would be much, much more than on my electric car. Uh, Then going back to the article. All right, EVs tend to cost more but need less service. Also true, but the federal tax credits help out a ton if if you could still get them the same way as I got mine back 10 years ago, $7,500 for a federal uh, tax credit, and I I received $4,000 in state tax credits through uh, the state of Colorado. Uh, federal tax incentives for EVs are in flux, so it's hard to know exactly how much a new one will cost. Yes, because again, the federal government 
and what the requirements are for the battery pack and where the source materials come from and how much comes from the United States or North America or other countries that, you know, there's just, there's a lot of requirements in the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, would go to your EV uh, rebate. And it's, it's somewhat com- convoluted and confusing for a lot of folks. But I, I say really think about your long-term vehicle use as an EV may make sense for some buyers, but it might be better to get a hybrid, a fuel-efficient hybrid instead. Uh, that's the way I would go. If I had to buy another vehicle right now, I would buy a hybrid, uh, but not a pure electric just yet. I would love to buy something that's hydrogen, but that's just not feasible to fuel up unless I could fuel it up at home, uh, which I can't do now. Uh, speaking of electric cars and hydrogen cars and all kinds of cars, uh, we, we've heard for some time now, time and again, that the mandates that will require the adoption of electric vehicles by a specific year, that, that it really isn't too far off into the future, that it, it, we're wondering if it's realistic. Well, the Consumer Energy Alliance, they released a new report saying that, no, it's not. And joining me now to talk more about this is Consumer Energy Alliance's Midwest Director, Chris Ventura. Chris, thanks for coming here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. You're, you're welcome. Glad we were able to make this time work. Before we get into the report of the findings, Chris, ex- explain what the Consumer Energy Alliance does and what the core belief is. Yeah. Well, Jason, Consumer Energy Alliance is a national consumer advocate and, and trade association. You know, Our core belief is making sure that uh, consumers, whether they're families, whether they're, they're small businesses, whether they're farmers, have access to affordable, reliable, and resilient energy. So that way, you know, when they flip the light switch on, uh, the lights actually do come on. And then when they get that bill in the mail, it's something they can actually afford to pay. And I know the connection's not great, but we'll plow ahead anyway. Is the Alliance pro-EV, anti-EV, or neutral on the whole electric vehicle market? But, you know, we are neutral because we think that consumers can make the best choice for their mobility needs. So whether that's an electric vehicle, whether it's a, you know, fuel cell vehicle, uh, like uh, the Toyota Mirage or Mirai that's being uh, sold in California or traditional internal combustion engines. You know, there, there's a place for everything. And and I understand you're in Denver. Are you in Denver to promote this research or you're just on vacation or, or what What you doing in town? Yeah, visiting Denver. We, we have an office out here, you know, just to make sure that we can uh, make sure that individuals from Colorado and, and the Rockies are, are represented when it comes to energy issues. And why did the Alliance want to conduct this research? Was there some burning issue here? Or, I mean, we're looking at mandates that are far down the road, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Yeah. Uh, but but why did you want to do this research right now? Yeah. You know, we have over 550,000 grassroots members, and, and they're, you know, respond to Facebook posts that we put out there. They tweet questions at us at CEA Org on, on the Twitter. And one of the, the big discussions over the past few months has been, you know, are electric vehicles the right choice for me if I'm looking at buying a new car or a used car? And so we simply wanted to take a, you know, take all the politics out of it and look at those questions that consumers should be thinking about when they're looking at, at purchasing a vehicle and ultimately what our regulators are you know, actually implementing, you know, things that they need to consider from a policy perspective on, on, uh, on vehicle choice. 
My guest is Chris Ventura. He's the Consumer Energy Alliance Midwest Director. We're talking about uh, their new report called Freedom to Fuel Consumer Choice in the the Automotive Marketplace, uh, released here in 2023. So let's talk about specifics about this report. So on a scale from, let's say, 1 to 10, with 1 being the most unprepared to meet the mandates that are coming down the road, how likely are is the United States gonna, or you know, the the car companies, the states, every? How likely yeah. will these mandate goals be met? Well, it, it all depends what bucket of mandates you're talking about. You know, overall, we are not as as well prepared as we should be. If our goal is like California's goal, which is making sure that we've got a hundred percent EVs on the road by twenty thirty or twenty thirty five. You know, for states like Colorado that, you know, are, are not following California's path right now, where, you know, their goal is, is a bit further down the road, you know, looking at 2040, 2050 or so, uh, there's a, a more realistic ride path to making sure that, that we're ready for electric vehicles. One of the near-term problems is that fossil fuel plants and nuclear power plants, they, they are being shut down at a faster pace than they're being replaced by renewable energy generation. So we're losing more capacity right now than gaining, than we need to be gaining uh, to go all electric, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, last November, December, the Colorado CUC actually put out a report looking at resource adequacy in the state. And, you know, they, they in particular looked at, you know, what would happen as we move towards more uh, electric usage here in Colorado, whether that's from electric vehicles or whether it's from uh, electrification for space heating. And what they found that the grid is really unstable when you look at the heat waves or or freezing temperatures and adding more and more electric usage to the current grid is basically a recipe for, for disaster. And especially it's tough to improve the grid because it's it's going to need some improvements over time in these rural areas, especially as a result uh, in regards to long distance charging for people on a road trip, for truckers, especially that there's a big push to get electric trucks on the road. If you don't yeah. have a robust rural area grid network, then they're going to be dead in the water or trying to charge for two days. Exactly. And that's one of the policy considerations that, that regulators and elected officials have to actually put into this mix. You know, one, you know, whether or not our, our grid can sustain this increased, uh, transmission. And then two, you know, whether these end users, you know, whether you're living in, in downtown Denver or whether you're on the front range actually have access to, to electric charging stations. You know, one of the things that, that we've seen and, and Colorado's been incentivizing this is trying to put more charging stations out there. And, you know, most recently, you know, saw that there's about 4,000 level two charging stations in the state, about 800 or so fast chargers. And you want to contrast that to, you know, the fact that there's over 2,300 gas stations in the state. And if you know, they've got a minimum of eight pumps, they've got 18,400, you know, locations where you can, you know, pump gas or, or fuel your vehicle on any given day. And, you know, that is a lot, you know, in comparison to the number of electric charging stations that we have out here for public use. Yeah, my guest is Chris Venturi. He's Consumer Energy Alliance's Midwest Director. We're talking about uh, their new report that you can find right now in the description of this show. It's called Freedom to Fuel, Consumer Choice in the Automotive Marketplace. It, it, what would kill the 
combustion engine market faster than anything is, as you just mentioned, the gas station, right? What if they got away for they 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 changed their focus from making uh, renewable energy production and just killing all the gas stations? Because some cities, even in Colorado, are are not allowing new gas stations to be uh, uh, created. Yeah. wouldn't it's almost the inverse of what EV owners are dealing with right now. They don't have enough places to charge their car so if you have uh, a fewer places to fill up your car with gasoline you're going to kill off the ice engine industry exactly you know one of the things to make sure is that we can still have gas stations to fuel vehicles you know what's overlooking some of these discussions is the belief that that you can just flip a switch you know you, you say your goal is to have 100 percent electric vehicles by 2035 on the sales side people keep their cars for 8 10 12 even 15 years now and so, you know, when you hit 2035, and, you, and if you do have all, you know, EVs being sold, you still have a majority of the fleet being powered by the internal combustion engine. You know, not just for 10 years or 15 years, but for 20 or 25 years in in the future. So we will need you know, gas stations for, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, anyways. Right. Um, solar, you know, wind, those those right now are sources of renewable energy. And if you've ever been out to the eastern plains of Colorado or other places in the United States, they're very land intensive. Uh, I found it interesting. I was reading somewhere uh, about these issues, and there's actually a considerable grassroots environmental opposition effort against these large land requirements for solar fields and these windmill plantations because they don't they don't want uh, all these they don't want it to to ruin the environment, but they still want to save the environment. By having the windmills and all the solar fields, you know that's that's right. You know, for us, we're energy agnostic as, as to what comes to, to powering the grid. And you know, one of the things that we realize is, is there's no one silver bullet for each state. Each state has different resources available. And if you're talking about land use and power generation, especially if you're looking at at having a cleaner and healthier and more sustainable environment, you know, one of those technologies out there that you know really is is you know not being being uh, appreciated fully by some on the environmental side is nuclear power, where you have a very small land footprint. Uh, the electricity that's generated by nuclear is 100% carbon free. And on top of that, it, it's base load generation. So it, it you know, is not intermittent. It doesn't need to have full sunshine or full wind to actually produce the electricity that could recharge electric vehicles or, or power our houses. And that's a supplemental uh, part of the equation as well, because when you have the wind not blowing and you have the sun not shining, you're not going to be generating that power. So you're going to need to find it somewhere else and you're going to need some sort of supplemental power, no matter what kind of renewables you're using. Yeah, you'll you'll either have to have backup generation, which you know currently is, is typically natural gas speaker plants because they're able to ramp up and ramp down as the circumstances allow, or battery storage. And, you know, quite simply, on, on the battery storage side, we're seeing some of the, the exact same obstacles that we're seeing uh, with, with batteries for electric vehicles, where it's, it's increasingly difficult to, to source the minerals necessary and the quantity of those minerals necessary to actually go to the manufacturing output that we need. You just mentioned the rare earth minerals that you need to create these batteries. 
We hear of difficulty finding enough lithium in the world, and it only comes maybe from certain places. But I, yeah. I saw, it wasn't too long ago, I saw a 60 Minutes article or a report uh, about all the lithium that's now being extracted near the Salton Sea there in California, and then there's yeah. a large mine out in Nevada, Nevada. right? Yeah. yeah, so what won't that meet our supply? Are, are they starting to find some of these rare earth minerals? I, I know cobalt is much more challenging to find than the lithium right now. Yeah, so so the issue is when, when you're looking at the minerals necessary to, to produce an electric vehicle or um, even wind turbines or solar panels or batteries for, for utility-scale storage, the, the amount of, of minerals that we need is exponential compared to what we're mining today. So it's not just lithium. You know, you're looking at cobalt. You're looking at nickel, manganese, copper, all of these different minerals. And, you know, being able to mine it is one thing, but you also need the facilities to actually refine uh, the, the materials that you've mined and then, you know, send it to the, the battery plant, for example. And, and unfortunately, when you're looking at the majority of the critical minerals out there and the rare earth, uh, over 9% of all of those minerals are refined and processed in China. And that's completely different than being able to build a battery pad. You know, you see all of these new battery uh, facilities, the, the gigafactories and, and the like being set up here in the United States. But that's the end of the battery supply chain. All the, 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 the graphene and the lithium and the cobalt and the nickel have to be processed before going there to become that battery pad. And then if you have one of these EVs that are wrecked, or it, the battery begin, begins like your phone battery, get to the point where it's only holding 60% of the original charge, there really isn't a robust uh, system right now to... Uh, use those batteries and use the mineral and extract them out of there and really recycle them. And so you're just have them sit there in a landfill and that's not good for anybody. No, no, that's not. And, and, you know, that's one of the, the things that, you know, we have to improve upon as a nation is, is making sure that we can recycle all the batteries that, that come out of EVs, you know, whether it's from their, their useful service life or whether they happen to be in a car accident, you know, being able to make sure that we can, you know, recycle those batteries, make sure that they're not put in landfills or, or any other place. And, you know, when, when you're looking at, at EV maintenance, you know, unfortunately, we don't actually have enough of a track record right now to, to determine, you know, you know, after your 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty, for example, runs out, you know, how long will that battery actually last? And battery replacement costs, if you plan to keep your car, you know, or truck past that 10-year mark, you know, really is a, a question is, you know, will it cost 10000 Will it cost $15,000 to replace that battery pack? Do you have a usable, usable vehicle, you know, after your 10 years or 15 years of ownership? Well, and, and to let you know, I, I own a Chevrolet Volt. I've had it for 12 years. It's a, it's a 2014. So I've had it for oh, 10 years. I had I released one before the one I, I purchased. So I've been driving yeah. basically one for the last 13 years. And right now, the current car that I own, I'm at 115,000 miles. And so far, the battery's doing great. The car's doing great. But I do have that concern because the battery pack, if I did have to replace it, is going to be worth more than what the car is worth at this point. So yeah. it would be silly of me to get a new battery pack in a car that's not worth it and then just go ahead and scrap it and get a brand new EV. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, one of the things to consider is what that actually might do to the used vehicle market. You know, the way that, that auto prices are right now when you're looking at new vehicles and even used vehicles, 
you know, the Washington Post did a story on this a, a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, owning a car used to be the American dream. Can we actually own vehicles anymore? Uh, just because the prices have, have gotten so high. And, you know, the, the question is, can those who are, are on fixed incomes or, or low incomes or, or middle income earners, you know, can they want, you know, afford a new vehicle? And if you've got a family and your kids are just starting to, to learn how to drive, you know, where can you get that used vehicle, you know, that they can actually, you know, take to high school and, and run errands? Yeah, and it's uh, a lot easier to put a, a used engine in a older car than it is to try to refit the uh, an EV with a whole new battery pack, and and you can keep. Yeah. I, I remember my my buddy. We took took the engine out of his old VW Bug, and then re, you know fixed it in his living room, and then put it right back in. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I had a hag, hag went through that exact same scenario a couple <laughs> years ago with my Ford Escape, where the the turbo and the uh, and the transmission decided to go, and um, you know it 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 costs less to actually fix it and get it replaced than it did to get a a new vehicle at the time so bit the bullet and luckily we was able to get those replaced so i i i know how painful it is my guest is Chris Ventura. He's Consumer Energy Alliance's Midwest director talking about their new study called Freedom to Fuel Consumer Choice in the Automotive Marketplace 2023 and i i was thinking about these mandates and California has a mandate, I think it's 2035, is when they won't allow any new ICE vehicles to be sold in that state. I think New York is the same, maybe some uh, Vermont, is there another state in there somewhere? But yeah. let's, say, let's say I'm in California, and there will still be states like, let's say, Texas and Idaho that won't have mandates. So are we going to have to just then, let's say I, I need a new vehicle, I can't afford to have a EV, maybe I want a hybrid or a, just a pure ICE car, am I going to have to drive or fly up to Boise and buy a car up there and then drive it back to California? <laughs> I, you would more than likely, depending on, on how the state regulations are, you might have to go out of state to purchase that new vehicle or used vehicle. And, you know, one of the considerations is when you do bring that car back into the state, whether or not they'll actually allow you to register it, because it does have an internal combustion engine. So these are some of the policy considerations that really need to be, be thought about and, and discussed and, and really have the public weigh in on um, that, you know, we really haven't seen that much, you know, thought behind. Because I'm sure that some states, I would imagine that Texas is going to be one of them, that will try to exploit their lack of mandates as a uh, business benefit to some, uh, maybe even trucking companies or other companies that have fleets of vehicles. Well, no, I, I can tell you, you know, living in Ohio, we've got Kentucky, we've got West Virginia, we've got Michigan, Pennsylvania, right across the border. And, and Indiana as well. And uh, you'd be surprised at how many people, you know, just 30 minutes, sometimes an hour to get out of the state. If they find a better price on a vehicle out of state, they'll just buy it there and drive it back. General Motors is already, re, re, you know, refitting all of their uh, uh, assembly lines to only assemble EVs. They're, they're going to start phasing out as much as they can any type of hybrids or ICE vehicles. And obviously, the drive to put these EVs on the road is on. Can it's obviously not going to be stopped. Should it be slowed down? Is there is there time for uh, the you know the United States, the consumer, whatever, to uh, be able to catch up? I mean, is there is is it going too fast right now? 
You know, I think when you're looking at, at the business plans of any of the automotive companies, you know, they're constrained by some of the regulations uh, from state and, and the federal government as well. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to run into is, is an actual, you know, physical wall, you know, when it comes to some of these policy decisions. So, you know, you look at the, the Inflation Reduction Act that came across where you have, you know, varying levels of incentives for EVs based on how much of their battery components are sourced from America or our, our allies. And we've got that limitation on mining. So whether or not you can actually get that full $7,500 tax credit uh, to purchase an EV is questionable because as the years go on, uh, that percentage of, of source material ratchets up. Uh, you know, same with the electric grid, you know, how are we going to be able to make sure that if we've got, you know, uh, 30 million more EVs on the road, uh, being able to charge them without crashing the electric grid or, you know, where we would actually charge those. So there are a, a lot of physical limitations that are, are put in place that, you know, we really need to discuss and figure out how to actually, you know, make EV adoption easier if that's the goal. Uh, because these physical limitations are, are going to make EV adoption harder. But some of these car, car makers, especially the ones not in the United States, Toyota does make cars here, but mm -hmm. Toyota is obviously not based in the United States or Japanese company. And they make vehicles for all parts of the world, especially a lot of vehicles in places where electric charging is non-existent. Yeah. Well, couldn't you imagine that a Toyota or Nissans, I mean, those types of manufacturers are going to be continuing to make ICE vehicles for the foreseeable future for parts of the world that aren't going to see the electric infrastructure that we are trying to install here in the United States. Yeah, I, I, quite simply, they, they have to. And you know, if you look at the different technologies that are available, you know, not, you know, fully electric vehicles, but your plug-in hybrid electric, you know, where you've got that gasoline or diesel engine with the electric motor. Now, you look at technology like that, where you get that increased miles per gallon, you get the peace of mind of, of being able to just stop at a filling station if you're, you know, you're charging the battery runs low. Um, you, know, you look at some of the other technologies that are being developed, whether they're hydrogen fuel cells and the like. Um, you know, those are all things that you know consumers should have access to because you know not everyone lives in in an urban area where they might have access to fast chargers. You know. Not everyone might need a car in, in downtown Denver, for example. You know, sometimes they, they just need the, the scooter to get around uh, or ride sharing. But, you know, if you live out on the front range where you need a pickup truck to actually do work or if you've got a, a small business in, in heating and cooling or plumbing and you need a, a utility vehicle, um, you know, those are some things that we want to make sure that consumers have access to. You know, it's funny. You just mentioned the pickup truck. I, I received an email from AAA today that said they were testing uh, EV pickup trucks and how well they do under a load. And when you have a fully loaded EV pickup truck, it loses about 25% of its charge. Um, yeah. And people, I don't, if it was a cold day, you would lose another 25%. I don't think people understand yet some of the limitations in these batteries and how quickly or or long it takes to charge when it's hot when it's cold and, and yeah. the load uh when it's hot you know all of that really plays into how far you can go in these cars that that say you can go 500 miles but you really can't yeah and, and it's not just cars you know there, there's a, an rv manufacturer 
Uh, if you really want to have some fun, uh, one of the, the, the consumer report guides uh, that focuses on electric vehicles took the, the first electric RV that was made in this country out for a spin. And this was last summer. And they wanted to see if it actually lived up to all the hype. And they found that, you know, to, to get the mileage that the company said they would get, um, they had to drive under 40 miles per hour on the highway to make sure that the range was extended for them to get to the next campground that had the, the electric outlet to charge the, the RV. So there, there are some, you know, you know, one, we've got some technological limitations right now. And two, we have to be cognizant that some of the applications that people use vehicles for, um, you know, not everything might lend itself to being fully electric. My guest is Chris Venturi. He's Consumer Energy Alliance's Midwest director talking about their new uh, uh, article called Freedom to Fuel, their research uh, consumer choice in the automotive marketplace. You mentioned just a moment ago hydrogen. Is there still room for hydrogen? It seems that it's a good technology. You're still driving electric, uh, but you have no exhaust. Uh, it, it seems like it would be a great idea because you can just fill up like you can with gasoline, especially for the truckers. Is yeah. there room for hydrogen in this whole mix? It, there should be. And we, right now on the hydrogen side, we've got a number of companies, you know, whether it's Toyota, whether it's Cummins, looking at, at your heavy-duty vehicles that have invested billions of dollars into researching you know, hydrogen engines and hydrogen fuel cells. And one of the things to remember is in that Inflation Reduction Act, we also saw support um, as well as from the, the recovery package, support for the development of hydrogen hubs across the country. You know, ways to actually develop hydrogen as a fuel, uh, fuel source, whether it's for, for, uh, automotive purposes, whether it's for power generation, uh, whether it's for chemical production. So the federal government is already in trying to incentivize, uh, further research into hydrogen. Um, so it's, it's not too late and it should be an option. We're maybe a dozen years away from some of these mandates taking effect what's next will there be any pullback you think from a state like california who is looking at this mandate going we we are are are, are we dead set on 2035 and that's it no matter what yeah i i I think it all depends on the state uh, that you're talking about you know we've seen some robust conversations in, in some states you know, that are looking at following California's rules where instead of, you know, making sure that, that it is a 2035 mandate, for example, you know, they've said, you know, our goal is 2040 or 2050. So it's not a hard and fast mandate because they realize that, you know, they need to make sure that their infrastructure is hardened. They've got to make sure that, you know, there, there are fueling stations, uh, for the, their residents to actually utilize, especially those who, you know, are, you know, might be on the, the, the lower income end of the spectrum that might be, you know, renting, you know, homes or apartments where because they're renting, they don't have access to install their own uh, electric vehicle charger. So bottom line, as we start to wrap this up, the Biden administration wants to be net zero by 2050. Do you think as the uh, Consumer Energy Alliance, do you, do you think we will be there? Do you think we'll make it? It is a, a good goal, but I don't think that w- with the current technology that's out there today, uh, I don't think that that goal is feasible. But there are things that we can do to, to help, you know, make sure that we do have you know, continued reductions in emissions and a healthier environment. You know, just utilizing the current technology and encouraging, you know, ways to become more efficient with what we have. 
You know, I'm I'm really sad about the uh, Auto Zones and Pep Boys, and I mean, really, if you if you don't have a car to tinker with, I mean, what's the point of having an auto parts store if you can't <laughs> <laughs> if you don't need auto parts to put in there? Yeah, no, I I agree, and and that's what, you know that's one of the other oh. things that that you know we really haven't seen much discussion around is you know when you look at your your all electric vehicles or you know even some of the the newer ICE vehicles, you know how hard it is to work on them like some of the older cars. You know, I can tell you when uh, when the Ford, before the whole engine issue happened, you know, went to replace the battery, you know, I used to have a Grand Prix, pop open the hood, um, took all of 15 minutes to take the battery out, put it back in. For the Escape, it was designed by an engineer as opposed to a mechanic, and it was as far back in that compartment, <laughs> almost under the steering column, <laughs> to get to it. And it was, it was a challenge. So, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we, we can be able to work on our own cars too. Yeah. yeah I guess there'll be just, you're selling, uh, what wiper blades and shocks and struts that you can maybe, <laughs> maybe a brake pad, <laughs> right? Maybe that, you know, hopefully they're able to sell the computer if you can diagnose what's wrong with your car yourself. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, uh, Chris, I really appreciate your time. Chris Ventura, Consumer Energy Alliance, Midwest director. Uh, appreciate your time. Enjoy your time here in Denver. Jason, thanks for having me. I appreciate speaking with you today. Now, again, if you want to read the study for yourself, I did put a link to it in the description of this show. And eventually there will have to be either a freighter ton of money that goes into the infrastructure uh, of electricity to meet these mandates, especially in rural areas, or the mandates will have to be pushed back a bit, maybe in a couple year increments, maybe in five year increments, whatever. But I could see that as as Chris said, you could really see that being pushed back. And only time will tell, but I but I assure you, in the year 2035, which is in 12 years from now, I won't be doing this podcast, nor will I be doing my current work as a reporter and TV anchor. So will I care at that point? Yeah, probably I'll care. Uh, but I won't be talking about it with you all. Uh, what I will be doing is, well, I'm not sure what I'll be doing. Uh, but I... I Actually, I wouldn't mind being a uh, uh, like a bartender in the morning at a bar and grill in Key West. I, I think that would be pretty relaxed because you're not going to have the crazies as you would in the evening. I think it'd be more relaxed, more chill in the morning. You serve somebody a breakfast burrito and a uh, Bloody Mary or a, or a whatever, and then off you go. And I, I think that'd be pretty nice there in Key West. And then you have your evenings to yourself. Uh, what I always thought actually would be neat, it, 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 like in retirement years, is to because uh, I want to see the country, but I don't want to see the country in in like one week at a time when you go on vacation. I, I want to see a city because I, I really wanted to exploit Boise and, and and parts of Idaho or or Montana and other parts of of the South or the or the Northeast, like going to Maine. I think it would be fascinating. But and I'd like to do that over more than just like a week or two. And so I thought it'd be neat to live in a city. So let's take Bangor, Maine, right? I think it would be neat to live in Bangor for like six months. You get some kind of a random job. Uh, there's a lot of blue-collar jobs or, or, or service industry jobs that anybody can pick up because you've done that in the past, and, and everybody's always hiring. No, you're not going to make a lot of money, but you make some money to supplement uh, your lifestyle as, as you're living in these places for six months. But you really get to know a city or a town or a state uh, doing it that way m so much more than being there for a week or two when you're on vacation and staying at a hotel, when you can put down roots for six months, uh, rent a place, 
uh, that's fully furnished and and it doesn't have to be fancy. You just you know clean and dry uh, with a kitchen and a bathroom. That's that's all I would really need. Uh, but I think that would be a great way to see the country and see all these different places and and really explore uh, different lifestyles. Yeah, I guess you could do that in Europe too. I mean, really, they need bartenders and well, I could pour a beer just like anybody else can pour a beer out of a tap. Uh, that, that would work for me. Uh, but trying to predict what I will be doing in the future or where I will be is futile. So I won't do it. Well, I, 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 I do know this. I won't be doing <laughs> this program. Well, anyway, thanks for being here while I am here. Uh, and thanks for listening. And until next time, I am Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe. And as always, happy motoring.